This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Millionaire Murders, where people are targeted for murder due to their wealth. The case I'm sharing with you today started out as a love story and ended up in homicide. Tens of millions of dollars were at stake in a contentious divorce, where greed and resentment turned into hate. This is Chapter 3, Ted Ammon, Murder in the Hamptons, Part 1. Marie-Therese Legay grew up as a farmer's daughter. She decided on a religious vocation early in life and entered a convent. But by 1955, she had left the convent and become a party girl, now going by the nickname Babe. After World War II ended, there were plenty of young single servicemen to date, and Babe, now a young divorcee, was looking for a good time. She had become a war bride, marrying her first husband and having two children, a boy Charles and a girl Marie Therese, by 1945. Her husband divorced her after one too many times finding the children home alone while Babe was out drinking and dancing. She married another man, Clarence Rand, whom she had had another daughter with, named Dolly. Clarence was a disabled veteran who ended up living in a veteran's hospital due to his declining health. They then split up, and Babe kept Dolly, but her daughter was often cared for by Babe's brother, Al, and his wife. Babe, now living in Long Beach, California, went out one night and met a sailor at a bar. His name was Generoso, and he was in the Italian Navy. His English was not so good, but he was tall and handsome, and he asked Babe to dance. They ended up spending the week together, and then he left to sail back home. Before leaving, he gave her a picture of himself with an Italian address scribbled on the back. A month later, Babe found out she was pregnant with her fourth child. She wrote to Generoso to tell him, but she never heard from him again. Babe's daughter was born March 22, 1956. She named her Generosa Jomary Rand. She gave the baby her second husband's last name, and the family didn't call her Generosa, not wanting to answer questions about the origin of her name, but instead either called her Jen or Joe, short for her middle name, Jomary. She was a cute blonde child who became close to her older sister, Dolly. Babe's mother and father had since died, and their property was left to Babe, but her brother Al was made executor of the will. He set up a trust fund and purchased stock and oil shares. In this way, he was able to have money to provide for Babe and her growing family. When Generosa was four, Babe went with her daughters to live with their uncle Al in Oceanside. Babe got a job as a church secretary and began attending Mass again with her girls. But after a brief time as a responsible single mother, Babe went back to her hard-partying ways, and the girls were left with their Uncle Al, or Al's English housekeeper. Generosa says at this time she realized she was more fond of the housekeeper than her own mother. When Generosa was about five or six years old, she was molested by a family friend. He started out gaining her trust, and then began asking her to rub his shoulders and neck. Later, he began rubbing her shoulders. Slowly over time, he began to get her alone, and he asked her to touch other parts of his body. She was scared, but didn't know how to refuse. Like many child molesters, he then threatened her that if she told their secret, people would either not believe her 
or think she was a bad girl. She might even be taken from her mother, he warned her. Generosa was terrified, and it was at this time that she began to stuff her feelings of fear, hurt, and betrayal deep inside. She told no one and acted as best she could, like nothing had ever happened. In 1963, Al purchased a cottage in Oceanside for Babe and her daughters. He had married a second wife and moved to Laguna Beach. In 1965, Babe discovered a lump in her breast, but ignored it. There was a history of cancer in her family, so she knew what it might be, but she remained in denial, telling herself it was nothing. Two years later, she was so weak and dizzy that she finally saw a doctor who told her what she probably already knew. Babe had breast cancer that, gone untreated, had spread through her abdomen, ovaries, and into her brain. Her children were told she was sick, but not that it was cancer or that it was terminal. She was given high doses of painkillers like morphine, and the medication sometimes made her delirious. Generosa distracted herself by sewing pillows and other small items so she didn't have to concentrate on her mother, who was dying in front of her. She was finally given emergency brain surgery when all else failed, but she never recovered from it. In a few weeks, she was dead. Generosa was just 10 years old. Soon after her mother passed, Generosa was looking through a box of her mother's photos with Dolly. She saw the picture of the handsome sailor. She had never seen it before and asked Dolly who he was. Her sister explained that he was her biological father, not Clarence Rand, as her mother had told her. His name was Generoso, she was told, and she'd been named after him. Generosa was stunned. In her mind, she now decided that her mother had always hated her because she was illegitimate. She hadn't named her after her biological father as a loving reminder, she would believe, but as a way to remember how he had ruined her life with a child she did not want. That's why she'd abandoned her. She saw her mother's death as a deliberate rejection of her rather than a tragic illness. Now and forever, Generosa would repeat this story about her childhood, how she had been rejected and abandoned by her mother. Generosa also resolved to be strong, she would become someone important, a person of wealth and status. And if she ever had children, she vowed to be a better parent than Babe had been to her. Generosa and Dolly went to live with their Uncle Al and Aunt Marge and their children in Emerald Bay, an exclusive community just north of Laguna Beach. Generosa quickly became a difficult child. She was very competitive with the other children and needed the most attention. When she didn't get her way, she could lash out viciously at her guardians and her cousins. One of her older male cousins remembered thinking she was scary and tried to avoid her. When Marge's friend and her husband offered to adopt Generosa, Marge and Elle agreed. Generosa went to live with her new family in the Santa Inez Valley. They lived in a beautiful eight-bedroom home on a large horse ranch. She was given a beautiful room of her own, as well as her own horse to ride. Generosa took quickly to riding and was a natural. She soon began competing in horse shows and won ribbons and trophies. She was now being raised as a rich girl living on an estate with two parents. She was given riding and piano lessons. She blossomed into a lovely young woman. She resembled her mother with high cheekbones and wavy blonde hair. However, within a year, her new family called Generosa's older half-sister Terry to tell her that things just weren't working out with the girl. 
she was causing problems for them and with the other children. Generosa never seemed to be satisfied with anything and was very demanding. She wanted more and more material possessions and would fly into a rage if she didn't get them. They were worn out and wanted Terry to take her off their hands. She agreed, and Generosa moved, once again, to live with a new family. Terry had taken in Dolly and had two daughters of her own. Terry's husband was a high school English teacher, and they lived in a nice home in Santa Clara, a small town located in the San Francisco Bay Area. Generosa, however, found it lacking after her time living with a wealthy family. She was angry and resentful at having been sent to live with this decidedly middle-class family. Terry, having been shuttled around as a child, was also suffering from the effects of abandonment as well as childhood sexual abuse. She became more depressed after Generosa arrived. She could make no headway with the girl. Everything descended into an argument. She became more ill over time, and finally, she and her husband realized they could not meet Generosa's needs. They told her they loved her, but because of Terry's illness, it was necessary to find her a new home. Generosa cried and then became angry. She had been rejected once again. She went to live with her Uncle Al once more, but Generosa, now an angry and rebellious 13-year-old, taxed their resources and their patience. He called a distant family member, Fran Thomas. Fran and Les Thomas had two daughters, age 18 and 16, and agreed to take Generosa in to live with them for the summer and then decide if she should stay. Fran soon found out that there was nowhere left for Generosa to go. After talking with her family, she sat with her and told her they'd like her to stay and live with them long term. She was told that they had gotten her a spot at St. Mary's Academy, a private Catholic school where their daughters attended. She could start in the fall. Generosa then informed her that St. Mary's wasn't good enough for her. And by the way, she was a Protestant. I want to go to a boarding school where they have horses, she announced. Fran told her that she could attend St. Mary's or leave. She wasn't happy, but she complied. But by Christmas, the Thomases were called in by the head nun at St. Mary's. Generosa was not welcome back after the holiday break. She had a bad attitude and a smart mouth, and they would not tolerate it. Fran Thomas, to her credit, was not one to shy away from a challenge, but she was also no pushover. She told Generosa that she had two options. She could either shape up, apologize to the nuns, and return to school with a new and better attitude, or she could ship out. She would make two phone calls, Fran said. The first would be to her Uncle Al, but he won't take you, she predicted. The second call would be to a foster home. Generosa just looked at her squarely and said, Well, I know what I have to do. Generosa slowly came around and began doing better in school and watching her temper. One outlet she found was art. She had been interested in drawing and painting since she was a young girl, and now she spent as much time as she could on her artwork. She also joined the tennis team. She began to grow close to Fran's daughters, Mary Beth and Carol, and called them her sisters. She also took to calling Fran mom. Generosa finished high school while living with the Thomases and only left when she entered college at UC Irvine. She lived with her Uncle Al again to attend the nearby university. She majored in art and had a real talent for not only painting and sculpture, but also art design and photography. But Generosa was still legally without a family. 
1977, her uncle Al adopted her in secret. Her uncle wanted her to have a real family, but Marge was against it. When Generosa found out that her aunt had opposed her adoption, she stopped talking to her. She began working with her uncle in his office furniture business. She asked him for money from her family trust fund, but he informed her that the money had all been used up years before. She didn't believe him and angrily complained that she had been cheated out of her inheritance. Generosa graduated from college in 1981 and began making money from her art and design work. She made plans to move to New York to become part of the city's vibrant art scene. Once there, she began breaking ties with all of her family and friends. When her sister Terry wrote to her to try to explain how sorry she was that she wasn't able to raise her, Generosa sent the letter back unopened. On the back of the envelope, she had written, I don't want to hear from you again. In New York, without a past history anyone was witness to, Generosa reinvented herself. She immersed herself in Manhattan's art scene and became a working artist, painting, sculpting, and as a photographer. She portrayed herself as a trust fund baby who created art for the fun of it, not because she needed the money. And she certainly looked the part. She was slim, blonde, and attractive, and knew how to dress to give the air of someone with money. She was also knowledgeable about horses and played tennis well. She fit in easily with the moneyed art crowd. But oddly, she was contemptuous of the women who ran in the elite society circles she worked so hard to become a part of. She was not like them, she'd say to friends. They were shallow and spoiled, while she was a working artist who knew how to take care of herself. It seemed she craved money and the finer things, and then alternately rejected the people who had those things. But her art didn't earn her much, so she applied for a real estate license to sell property in New York in order to pay the bills. In the spring of 1983, she took a phone call from a man who was interested in a property that was located on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, near the East River. He made an appointment to see the apartment later in the day. When the man didn't show up at the designated time, Generosa was furious. Just like these rich jerks, she thought, thinking they're better than people like me. She decided to contact him to give him a piece of her mind. Little did she know that this phone call would change her life in a most unexpected way. Robert Theodore Ammon was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1949. His father was a steel company executive and his mother was a homemaker. Ted, as he would be called, was their second child. His sister Sandy was 20 months old at the time of Ted's arrival. Ted grew up in the 1950s in America in the kind of family everyone thinks of when they picture that time and place. A successful father, a stay-at-home mother, two children, a nice home, and a station wagon. The Ammon children grew up, secure in the knowledge of their parents' love and support, and were encouraged to live out their dreams. When Ted was in the eighth grade, the family moved to East Aurora, New York, for Bob Ammon to take a job with another steel company. Ted grew tall, he would ultimately reach six foot four, and he was also athletic, playing baseball as well as competing on the swim team. He also played football in high school. One of Ted's lifelong loves was music. He had a passion for jazz music, but was also a big fan of the Beatles, as were most kids his age at that time. 
Ted was tall, good-looking, and self-confident. He was popular and always seemed to have a pretty girl on his arm. One penchant Ted had was to always seek out a challenge. He loved to fix and build things, but would never read the instruction manual. He preferred to try and figure it out on his own. It was more challenging and fun that way, he said. The more impossible something seemed, the more Ted seemed to be drawn to it. This would become a pattern of his throughout his life, in his career and in his relationships. After high school, Ted attended college at Bucknell University. He'd already decided he didn't want to follow in his father's footsteps as a steel company manager, but he wasn't sure what he did want to do, at least not at first. He began college as an architecture major because he knew he wanted to build things. But before he graduated, he had changed his major five times. He finally took an unconventional path and graduated with a double major in arts and economics. He wanted to have a business, but he also wanted to explore his creative side. Even when he graduated in 1971, he wasn't sure what he specifically wanted to do. He followed a girlfriend to San Francisco, California, and once there, decided to apply to a training program for international banking at Bank of America. While there, he met a smart and pretty young woman named Randy Day. They began dating, and when they graduated from the program, Randy got a job offer in London. Ted followed her there, and they married soon after. Ted realized that banking wasn't for him, and he decided to become a lawyer. But he had not attended law school. Never mind, Ted thought. He'd just studied to take the bar exam on his own. Randy's job transferred her to New York, and once they returned, Ted took the New York bar exam and passed on the first try. He began as a junior associate at a law firm, but he was soon bored. Both he and Randy were working long hours, and they began to drift apart. Randy finally asked Ted for a divorce. He was devastated, but after their divorce was final in 1983, they remained friends. Ted was still working as an attorney and was making enough money after his divorce to look for a nice bachelor pad in Manhattan. One day in the spring, he was looking through the real estate ads in the New York Times and came across a listing for an apartment located near the East River. He called the number and spoke to a woman with an unusual name, Generosa Rand. He made an appointment to see the property, but Ted had a bad habit of procrastinating. When he finally looked at the clock to get ready to meet the agent, it was already late, so he decided to blow off the appointment. He was very surprised to receive such an angry call from the agent the next day. How dare he not show up, she demanded. He wasn't the only person who was busy, she countered after he gave her the excuse. Was his time more valuable than hers? Ted, feeling a little guilty, and also a little intrigued by the moxie of this woman on the phone, apologized and set up another appointment, promising to keep it. When he met her at the apartment, he was immediately attracted to the pretty blonde 27-year-old. Ted wasn't interested in the apartment after all, but he was interested in Generosa, asking her out for coffee afterwards. She accepted. He continued to keep in touch with her on the pretense that he was still looking for an apartment. After a few such meetings, he simply asked her out, and they began dating. Ted was now 34, and he had two goals. One was to become successful and have a lucrative career, in what field he was still trying to determine, and two, to have a family. He'd love growing up in a home where his father was home every night for dinner at 6.30. 
he couldn't wait to sit at the head of his own table, surrounded by his wife and children. But first, he must realize his goal of being fulfilled in his career and financially successful. These were goals he and Generosa had in common. She was also driven and hardworking. She was not just a real estate agent. That was just her side job, she explained, because she was determined to pay her own way. She was first and foremost an artist. He could see how ambitious she was, and this was very attractive to him. While Ted and Generosa were living together within a month, Ted was not ready to make a commitment again. He had been saddened when his first marriage ended, and he wasn't sure he wanted to risk it again just yet. Still, Ted introduced her to his family, including his sister Sandy. They spent Christmas with Sandy, her husband Bob, and their two daughters after about six months of dating. Ted handed Generosa a small jewelry box to open in front of everyone. Everyone assumed it was an engagement ring, but when she opened it, the box contained a set of earrings. Even Sandy was upset that Ted had disappointed Generosa in front of everyone. Ted, however, didn't sense the awkwardness. After the holidays, Generosa told Ted that she was a serious person and expected to be treated that way. She was not someone to be toyed with. She wanted to be married. Ted still procrastinated, and by February, she gave him an ultimatum. Marry her, or she was leaving. Ted broke up with her. Her threat had not worked. Generosa called Ted's sister Sandy and told her how hurt and angry she was with Ted. She told Sandy she wanted to remain friends. Sandy told Ted about the phone call. Later, when Sandy neglected to call her to keep in touch on her brother's advice, Generosa became angry and vowed to never speak to her again. In June of 1984, Ted was recruited by the firm Kohlberg Kravis Roberts. KKR had become famous for their success in the highly lucrative, if controversial, business of LBOs, or leveraged buyouts of big corporations. LBOs are highly complex financial dealings, but I'll give you a quick summary of what they entail. First, a group of investors called Raiders find a corporation whose stock and assets are, for some reason, undervalued. The Raiders then secure massive financing from one or more banks, to fund a buyout offer to the company's stockholders. The stockholders agree to sell their shares for a windfall profit. The Raiders then take over the renting of the company, selling off assets, property, and laying off workers to achieve massive profits. At the end, stockholders make a good profit, bankers a bigger profit, and the Raiders make huge profits, all without risking any capital of their own. These types of deals ushered in the 1980s me generation, where huge profits was the only goal. Movies like Wall Street illustrated the culture of corporate greed with the famous line, greed is good. Ted's new boss, Henry Kravis, had made millions from hostile takeovers and was a mover and shaker in Manhattan. Ted was the kind of employee KKR liked. Young, hungry, and ambitious, and a creative thinker. He began brokering deals for the company and was given all the perks, a large salary and expense account, and even access to the corporate jet. Ted was in the process of serial dating, seeing several women casually, when in the fall, he happened to run into Generosa at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They agreed to talk over coffee, and Generosa was ready to get back together, on one condition. He either put a ring on her finger, or she wouldn't see him again. This time, he gave in to her ultimatum, and they got engaged. 
Generosa, always one to know exactly what she liked and what she wanted, designed her own engagement ring, complete with two huge diamonds totaling over five carats. Ted and Generosa were married on February 2nd, 1986. Generosa, no doubt, made a beautiful bride. Unfortunately, she was definitely a bridezilla. First, she oddly decided to break off all contact with her Uncle Al before her wedding and never spoke to him again. That was his reward for being there for his niece throughout her life, giving her a job and even adopting her. Instead, she had Ted send KKR's private jet to pick up her Aunt Marge to bring her to the wedding. Marge was the aunt who had opposed her adoption and the person Generosa said she'd never speak to again. Generosa also invited her cousin, Al Jr., and his wife, Sally, to the wedding. Sally was pregnant, and Al called his cousin to say that they couldn't fly on the jet, per Sally's doctor's advice. Generosa became furious, thinking that they were rejecting her invitation. Al explained that they were planning to drive to the wedding instead. Hearing Generosa's reaction and the demand the bride had made that they rent their three-year-old son a tuxedo to wear to the wedding, Sally decided to stay home and Al flew to New York alone. He met Ted upon arriving in the city and liked him very much. Ted picked him up and drove him to the New York Athletic Club, where he had rented Al a room. He stopped to show him KKR's office with a view of the Manhattan skyline. He took him to the executive dining room, where meals were prepared by a gourmet chef. But Ted was not a braggart. To Al, it seemed that Ted, while enjoying the perks money could buy, was not fixated on material things. It was clear Ted enjoyed the challenge of making the deal, more than chasing dollars. Al felt he had to warn him. He knew Generosa to be a social climber and a person to whom possessions equaled self-worth. He also knew about her famous temper. I wish you luck, he told Ted. You've got a big job, man. Ted just laughed. When Al went up to greet his cousin at the rehearsal dinner that night, she turned on him angrily. You and Sally have shown me disrespect, she screamed at him. He says, she then said, I'm a New York socialite now and you can't disrespect me. Now, I'm not sure this statement is accurate. It sounds like a bit of an embellishment, especially after what I've learned about Generosa, not wanting to be lumped in with other society women. She felt she was more special and set apart from the old money society types who inherited their wealth. What is probably more true was that she acted snotty and stuck up with her cousin, who'd just flown across the country to attend her wedding. Al had had enough. He told her he was done, and he walked out of the rehearsal dinner. He picked up his suitcase and flew home. Ted and Generosa began their life as husband and wife in a townhouse on Fifth Avenue. Generosa set about to become a society wife, while Ted put all his energy into his work and began amassing millions of dollars in income. Generosa was a control freak over every detail, But Ted liked that. He had always been a bit of a procrastinator and a scatterbrain when it came to his personal and home life. So he was happy to let Generosa take over. She saw to every detail of their home, including furnishings, decoration, and the artwork on the walls. She spared no expense, but it was clear that she had a real flair for interior design, and their home was beautiful and elegant. They threw parties for people from business, society, and the art world. She still considered herself part of the artist community. In fact, it was her status as an artist she was most proud of. 
She believed this made her different from the shallow and materialistic wives of Ted's friends and co-workers. Generosa held firm onto this view of herself, I believe, because she always felt like something of an imposter. And of course, she was. From the time she was a preteen, Generosa told everyone that she was a wealthy trust fund baby and did her best to play the part. And after a while, she may have even convinced herself that it was true. But she certainly had not come from a wealthy family, and neither had Ted. She had a brief experience of that lifestyle with her first foster family, but she had blown it and been sent away. The truth of her actual upbringing had to be firmly planted in her mind, and she now decided that she was as good as, no, better than the wealthy people who now surrounded her. The need that Generosa had to be better than and have more than everyone else would become pathological in its intensity. Generosa hired a housekeeper as well as a personal assistant slash butler. Her butler named Stephen brought along his companion, a man named Bruce, who became the Ammons cook. While Generosa's staff now took care of her day-to-day needs, it freed her up to pursue her art and photography. Most of the pieces she created were used to decorate their townhouse that she'd redecorated from top to bottom. However, when the home was completely done, Generosa grew bored with it. She soon decided they needed a new home, and they purchased another townhouse, this time on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, near Central Park. She now had a blank canvas to work with, and set about gutting it and having it rebuilt according to her taste. She painted a large mural for the foyer. She also sculpted a life-size cement cow that she placed on the rooftop garden. Most people thought it looked odd, but Generosa loved it. It was also the only subject of any of her art projects that depicted a living being. All the rest of her art was abstract in the extreme. She also collected art and spent vast sums on some unusual pieces. An artist friend created art out of mangrove trees, cutting their trunks in the middle and then installing them on the ceiling of the townhouse so that the roots hung down into the room. Generosa created art installations that some friends found ridiculous, like a large installation in her kitchen made out of hundreds of found items like pushpins, soda can tabs, and other debris tacked to the wall. Ted, however, was proud of his artistic wife and supported her in her art. Friends and family, however, were aware of her mercurial temper. She seemed to fly off the handle for any little thing, and they began to suspect that perhaps she was bipolar. A friend and neighbor of Generosa's once brought up the subject of her quick-changing moods and asked her if she thought there might be something wrong. I know how I am, and there's a reason for it, she replied angrily. It's because of what happened to me when I was young. That was all she would say, and her friend let the matter drop. Generosa was bored once again and moved on to her third home remodel project. They purchased a home north of the city in Bedford. Once again, she gutted the property and remodeled and furnished it from top to bottom. On this property, she was also able to have horses. She began riding and competing in horse shows again. She began to travel and compete as an amateur jumper up and down the eastern seaboard. Ted continued to grow his reputation at KKR, working on major deals for the company. He was instrumental in the takeover of Storer Communications, which brought in profits of hundreds of millions of dollars. He was also involved in a $1.25 billion deal to take over World Color Press, the largest magazine printer in America. Ted Ammon had become a multimillionaire by his 36th birthday. 
When the stock market dropped over 500 points on October 19, 1987, more people jumped into the leveraged buyout game. It simply fueled the already record profits for companies like KKR. KKR's most famous and biggest transaction was the $25 billion takeover of RJR Nabisco. Their bid was accepted over several others who were vying for the takeover, and KKR made financial history. The story was later told in detail in the best-selling book, Barbarians at the Gate, which later became an HBO movie. One evening, Generosa was in her 92nd Street townhouse when the doorbell rang. She was alone and opened the door to what she thought were delivery men. Two men in ski masks rushed in and threw her to the floor. They then covered her mouth with duct tape before she could scream. They carried her down into the basement and threw a door into a small utility room. There they taped her to a chair, binding her hands and feet and blindfolding her. Believing she was going to be killed, she held her breath, terrified. The men went back upstairs, leaving her in the dark, helpless. She could hear them walking around upstairs. Later, it was discovered that the robbers definitely knew the layout of the house. They took her directly down to the basement, as if they knew where they were going. They also went quickly through the home, taking the most valuable items, including jewelry from a safe behind the bed in the master bedroom. They took her double diamond engagement ring as well. They then left. When Ted returned home, he found the house empty. He called out to his wife, but of course got no answer, as her mouth had been duct taped. He made some calls, and when she was nowhere to be found, he searched the house, including the basement. But he did not venture as far as the utility room. He discovered that the safe had been cleaned out. He now searched again, and finally, two hours after arriving home, he found Generosa tied to the chair. She was in an understandably panicked and terrified state. Immediately afterwards, Ted and Generosa spared no expense for security measures, including surveillance cameras and a state-of-the-art alarm system. Ted also hired armed guards. It took a long time for Generosa to feel safe again, and she could not be left alone for several months. She now talked to Ted about the past abuse she had suffered. He had a duplicate engagement ring made to replace her stolen one and tried to do whatever he could to soothe his wife. Afterwards, many would say that Generosa became even more volatile. Ted thought she would calm down after time passed, but she began to be even more suspicious of others, paranoid and negative. Her temper became worse as well. Generosa hired another assistant and became close to the woman. In what would become a pattern, Generosa would gravitate to others she felt had similar struggles or difficulties like she'd had growing up. The new assistant confided that she had been molested by an uncle as a child. Generosa then shared her own secret. She told her more about her childhood, telling her the story of how her mother had resented her because she was illegitimate. The assistant also had an abusive ex-boyfriend who was stalking her. Generosa helped her by giving her $8,000 to pay off her bills so she could sell her home and move away. Generosa also told her assistant that she felt most people were befriending her just to get to Ted, hoping to get money or a cut into one of his business deals. It seems Generosa still felt all alone, like she couldn't trust anyone and didn't have a true friend in the world. In actuality, Ted and Generosa would make friends, and then she would become angry at some perceived slight and cut off communication with them. She had done this throughout her life, burning her bridges behind her with friends and family alike. Ted and Generosa both wanted to have a family. Generosa wanted the stable family she'd never had, 
and Ted wanted the family experience he'd had as a boy. Soon after they decided to have children, she became pregnant. Unfortunately, the fetus had affixed itself to the fallopian tube instead of in the womb. If the pregnancy was allowed to continue, it would endanger Generosa, so the pregnancy had to be terminated. Afterwards, it was discovered that the damage that had been done by the tubal pregnancy made it unlikely that Generosa could conceive. They tried a costly series of fertility treatments, but they weren't successful. Later, she made a comment to friends dismissing her inability to get pregnant. I don't want to get pregnant, she said. I wouldn't be able to ride. One day when they were in the doctor's office going over their options, they saw a picture of two blonde-haired babies tacked to his wall. Who are they, the Ammons asked. They were told that they were Russian orphans who were in need of adoption. Immediately, Ted and Generosa were certain that they wanted to adopt these children. The pair were twins, brother and sister. The girl's name was Alexa Svetlana, and the boy was Gregory Ruslan. They were born in March of 1990 and were two years old. They had been slated for adoption by another wealthy Manhattan couple, but they changed their minds about adopting twins. The orphanage wanted to keep the siblings together. Ted hired a lawyer who specialized in foreign adoptions, and before long they were on their way to the Ukraine to meet the children. They would make several trips to become acquainted with Grego and Alexa and to go through the government's adoption process. Both children were malnourished, with Alexa being the more sickly of the two. She was hospitalized until her condition improved. They were able to bring their children home in the spring of 1992. The twins spent their first Easter in America with their parents and their Aunt Sandy and Uncle Bob, who had flown up from Alabama to celebrate with the new family. Ted was now worth over $50 million, but he had not been happy at KKR for some time. He wanted to be his own boss, and he knew that wouldn't be possible at his current company for some time. Generosa encouraged him to strike out on his own. She wanted him to go into competition with KKR. Indeed, she seemed to already be in competition with the boss's wife. Henry Kravis, CEO of KKR, was married to a former model, Carolyn Rome. Generosa was obviously jealous of her wealth, beauty, and position in society, and began saying ugly things about her to anyone who would listen. When she became openly hostile to Kravis and his wife at company functions, Ted decided it might be time to move on, rather than continue to suffer the embarrassment of his wife's behavior. In the fall of 1992, Ted resigned from KKR. People thought he was crazy to leave such a lucrative position, and also because he invested millions upon his departure in high-risk internet investments. But Ted, instead of continuing to work in the business of LBOs, took his money and went into the printing business. He purchased a company that did a brisk trade in the business of printing newspaper circulars. His gamble paid off, and the company that he named Big Flower Press earned $1.9 billion in annual revenues. He'd come up with the company name when his children, now learning English, pointed to a sunflower and shouted excitedly, Big Flower! That is so sweet. On top of Big Flower Press, his investments in internet and telecommunication stocks also soared. His net worth grew from $50 million to $200 million and then $400 million at the peak of his success. Seven years after starting Big Flower, he sold it for a profit and set up Chancery Lane Capital. He was back in the corporate takeover business after a slight detour and a lot of financial success on his own.
Things seemed to be close to perfect for the Ammons. They had everything they'd ever dreamed of. Beautiful homes, a family, unlimited financial resources, and the freedom to do just about anything they wanted to do. Ted's favorite part of the day was arriving home each day at 6.30, just as his own father had, to have dinner with his wife and two children. Generosa always made sure to have a wonderful dinner prepared by the cook and a beautiful table set. Life was good. Ted also saw to the security, physical and financial, of his family. Each of the residences was equipped with the very best security systems, as well as bodyguards for his wife and children. A former police officer watched over the children as they went to and from school and other activities. He also prepared a will that set up trust funds for Grego and Alexa, making the bank co-executor of his will, along with Generosa, who would inherit everything beyond the children's trust funds should he die first. Generosa never made any headway into the community in Bedford, the property they owned outside of the city. They sold it, and the Ammons began looking for property in the Hamptons. The Hamptons was the preferred locale for summer homes for the super-rich, including celebrities and captains of industry. It is located on Long Island and is known for its pricey mansions and beachfront properties. They found a white three-bedroom 1950s-era home at 59 Middle Lane, East Hampton. They purchased it for $2.7 million. It was located just a few blocks from the ocean and down the road from Jerry Seinfeld's $16 million estate. This home would be Generosa's biggest project yet, and the one that would always be dearest to her heart. She wanted to completely redo it and put her personal touch on it. She wanted her home to stand out as one of class and charm and become the envy of the neighborhood. She first hired a young architect named Jeff Gibbons away from his firm. She encouraged him to go out on his own, beginning with the design of her home as his first big project. In this way, she was also able to get his services for considerably less than what his firm would have charged her. Her vision was that the house should resemble an English country home on a grand scale, with a thatched roof and a curved eyebrow window in the middle of the front roof. It would be 6,000 square feet, with two guest bedrooms, four bathrooms, a den, a living room, dining room, mud room, a massive high-end kitchen, a sunroom surrounded by glass, and a two-and-a-half-car garage. And that was only the first floor. The second floor would hold a master suite and bath, dressing rooms, and a study for Ted. On the other end of the house would be the children's wing, with separate bedrooms for the children, as well as a playroom, a double bathroom, and a nanny's quarters. They would also construct a basement wine cellar for Ted's collection of rare wines, as well as an 8,000-square-foot pond with a bridge. There would be a pool and a pool house on the grounds as well. Of course, there would be security systems installed in the home, as well as a hidden safe room. The room was located behind a secret door in the children's playroom. In case the home was invaded, the Ammons could hide in there. There was also a telephone installed in the safe room, as well as a panic button that was connected to the home's burglar alarm that would automatically summon the police. The children were enthralled by the secret room after they moved in, taking their toys inside and using it as a hidden playroom. Generosa became obsessed with the Hampton House project. Jeff Gibbons soon felt more like a hired hand than the project's architect, as Generosa controlled every aspect of the build with an iron fist. There was no collaborating with her or offering advice. It was her way or the highway, and Jeff soon found himself regretting his decision to work for her. She wouldn't even let him put up his sign during the construction that read, 
Jeffrey P. Gibbons, architect, as was customary in the industry. Generosa raged against everything and everyone that was not to her liking. Those around her could see her insecurity and her way of seeing betrayal and rejection in every perceived slight. Of course, this would have stemmed from her chaotic childhood of bouncing from home to home, for often she found herself unwanted due to her demanding nature and her temper. Nothing except her age and bank balance, it seems, had changed over time. Her expectations began to become more and more unreasonable, either because she was testing all those around her to see if they would bend to her will, or because she couldn't be happy or satisfied with anything, or both, she became impossible to please. She would have something built, and then finding it lacking, would immediately have it ripped out and make the contractor start over again. Costs for the home were skyrocketing. It became a three-year, $3 million project, with a large portion of the money wasted on Generosa's whims. She would also never admit that what she decided needed to be built was a mistake. She was no architect, and sometimes her design ideas just weren't practical. After their warnings went unheeded, and invariably the work would have to be redone, she would blame the contractors and often made them pay out of their own pocket to correct the work. During the construction, which dragged on and on, Jeff's mother became ill and fell into a coma. He told Generosa that he needed to fly to Pennsylvania to be with his mother. Her response was less than sympathetic. She demanded the phone number to the hospital and where he'd be staying so she could call him anytime she needed him. She actually called him at the hospital, not to inquire about his terminally ill mother, but to demand to know when he'd be back. He had to tell her he couldn't predict when his mother would die, so he couldn't give her an answer. She hung up on him. Later, she complained to a friend about her architect's absence, saying, Hasn't anyone in his family ever died before? Ted, ever cool and calm, often just ignored his wife's bad behavior. At other times, he actually found it amusing. However, one winter day, Generosa had furniture delivered to the home that had a roof but no walls yet. She had Ted and a contractor move the furniture around several times in the freezing cold, to see how it would look. Finally, Ted had had enough. God damn it, Generosa, he finally yelled, stopping the madness. In one often told story about Generosa's irrational demands, she decided that she wanted only yellow flowers planted in the front of the new house and only blue flowers in the back. When she told the hired landscape gardener what she wanted, he warned her that the flowers she picked, golden tulips, looked one shade in the morning light and another shade in the evening light. She had him plant the 600 flowers. The weekend after he completed planting the flower beds, he drove up to find Generosa wildly ripping out all of the flowers he'd just planted. She looked crazed. They're the wrong shade, she screeched at him. Later, she also ripped out the trees he'd planted by the front door because they didn't produce the red berries she'd wanted. She ordered him to replace everything she destroyed, threatening him with her high-priced lawyers as she'd done with many other contractors before. Unable to afford a lawsuit, he took the financial hit. When another contractor called to postpone a scheduled appointment due to a sick mother, Generosa complained that she didn't understand what was wrong with people. People are born and people die, she told a friend. My mother abandoned us and I grew up in an orphanage. I struggled to make it all alone, but I made it. I won't let anything get in my way. Again, Generosa had rewritten her story to make her upbringing more tragic and try and bend people to her will. 
She would sometimes tell people that her mother had died in an insane asylum, not from cancer, as was actually the case. And of course, Generosa was not a self-made woman, and it was her children that had been in an orphanage, but she never had. The home was finally finished, and the family moved in. It was beautiful and perfectly decorated with every piece of furniture and decor carefully placed for maximum effect. The only glaring item was Generosa's cement cow that she insisted on placing near the pool. Jeff Gibbons brought a friend by to see the finished product. When Generosa heard him talking about designing the home, she bit his head off. You're not telling people you designed my house, are you? She demanded of the architect. Well, who did, he responded. I did, she spat at him. You just copied things out of books. The young architect who had designed and then redesigned the Ammons Hamptons house at the whim of the crazy rich lady was threatened that he'd better not tell anyone he was the architect. It was her house, and only she would get the credit for it. Beyond that, when he presented the final bill, she decided that he'd overcharged her and refused to pay him what he was still owed. He tried to appeal to Ted, but he just threw up his hands and deferred to his wife. Generosa again threatened to sue if he continued to harass her for the payment. He finally lost his temper, yelling at Ted and Generosa, Good things don't happen to people like you, people who treat others this way. The way you treat people will come back to get you. Ted had suggested a psychiatrist when he saw how his wife's moods were spinning out of control and that she never seemed happy or satisfied with anything. She would not hear of seeing a therapist or psychiatrist, even while she was continuing to lament her horrible, traumatic childhood. Now with the Hampton House project done, Generosa turned her need for control towards her husband. Ted had never been anything but patient, loving, and supportive of her, but she needed more. She began to say that she had turned Ted into the success he was, and told others that she would make sure he would never leave her. They weren't sure what exactly she meant, but it was concerning. She began to try and meddle into his business affairs, and even secretly added her name to his company phone directory. When Ted found out, it was one time that he really became angry with her. Whenever she did try and insert herself into his business, she just made enemies. She was demanding and aggressive with his employees and clients alike. She began to grill him daily about every minute of his day. She also gave him an outline schedule of what he should do, who he should call, and what meetings he should set up. He told her he already had an assistant and didn't need another one. She began to call his assistant to tell her what to do. As a result of all her controlling behavior, Ted began to stay at work longer, travel more, and avoid his wife as much as possible. He was becoming frustrated enough in the marriage to complain to his sister Sandy that he was thinking of getting a divorce. She encouraged him to try and work things out. He had a family, and the children depended on him. They tried counseling, but they didn't continue for long, and it didn't seem to help. Feeling that her husband was distancing himself from her, Generosa now began to become jealous, afraid he might leave her for another woman. One day when they were attending an event at the children's school, Ted was chatting with another child's mother. Generosa walked over to them and demanded loudly that she stop flirting with her husband. Everyone turned to look at the screaming woman, and Ted was mortified. But Generosa was not wrong. Ted's eye had been turned towards another woman, a younger investment banker that did business with his company. She was one of the attendees at a party the Ammons threw at their Manhattan townhouse. The woman was gorgeous and was wearing a revealing dress, 
Generosa picked up on how her husband followed her out of the corner of his eye and also saw the signals the woman was transmitting to Ted. She accused Ted of cheating, but he denied it. She sat at home, her mind spinning, until she could take it no more. She'd then pick up the phone and call Ted at work to scream at him about cheating on her. She was so loud that people in Ted's office could hear her voice clearly coming out of the receiver. One day she threatened Ted, saying, I'll have you killed. Ted, stunned, hung up, walked out of his office, and told an associate that his wife had just threatened him. She threatened to have me done away with. I'm dealing with a nut. She's out of her mind. He laughed nervously. Ted, perhaps thinking another project would calm Generosa down, perhaps using it as a way to get some distance from her, or both, decided to purchase a home in England. Generosa had spoken previously of wanting to move to London. Ted, at first, said he would take a job in London with an investment bank. Generosa jumped at the suggestion, probably thinking it would take him away from the temptation of the other woman. They purchased two properties, a flat in London's fashionable Knightsbridge neighborhood and a country estate in Surrey. The country property, named Coverwood House, was an 11,000-square-foot mansion with 10 bedrooms, a dining hall, library, office, and art studio, set on 17 acres, 35 miles outside of London. Generosa quickly set about decorating the two properties while the twins were enrolled in an English boarding school. The school was only 10 minutes away from their home, but it was decided that they would board at the school during the week and only come home on the weekends and holidays. The children were happy at school, away from the tension between their parents, and quickly settled in. Generosa had her horses sent to Coverwood to be housed in their estate stables. She began riding again and even participated in an English pastime of the upper crust, fox hunts. Her butler and cook, Stephen and Bruce, also came to stay at Coverwood. As well, she hired a housekeeper, a 53-year-old Englishwoman named Kay Maine. But as soon as they'd moved to London, Ted decided he didn't want to take the job in London after all. Instead, he would commute and continue running his business in New York. He would concentrate on landing deals in Europe. One of the biggest he arranged was a $16 billion takeover of British Telecom. Generosa, of course, wasn't happy that he was spending so much time away from home. She confided in her new housekeeper, who she'd become close to, that the real reason for the move to London was to save their struggling marriage. Generosa once again found a person she could relate to in Kay, Maine. Kay told her that she had become a teenage mother who wed and divorced young and then struggled to raise her children. She would remain close to Kay for many years and give her more and more responsibility and power within the household. Ted had begun an affair with the Manhattan investment banker, but he was able to cover his tracks, being so far away from his family. Strangely, the cat would be let out of the bag because Generosa wrongly suspected Ted of seeing another woman, his ex-wife, Randy Day. Ted continued to have an amicable relationship with his ex, and she had confided in him about her troubles during the divorce of her second husband. He'd given her a large loan to help her during the divorce, and Generosa suspected there was more to it. When she called friends in New York to ask about Ted and Randy, she heard about another woman, the banker she'd been jealous of previously. We'll call this woman Mary, since she remained anonymous through most of the unfolding events of this case. Ted had been seen with Mary around town, and tongues began to wag. When Generosa began to inquire about her husband's actions in New York, 
most people thought she must know about her and let her name slip out. The woman had also had a baby a year earlier, and the gossip was that Ted might be the father. While Generosa would quickly decide that this must be true, it would later be determined that the baby was not Ted's biological child. Once Generosa heard the news about her husband's dalliance with Mary, she began to look for proof. She pried open the locked desk in his London study and found a bill for a consultation with a London divorce attorney and paperwork indicating that Ted was purchasing a co-op in Manhattan that he had not told her about. She called Ted back to London, and they had it out. He denied having an affair with his ex-wife, but he did not deny a relationship with Mary. He said he wasn't sure what he wanted and needed time to figure it out. He said yes, he had consulted an attorney, but just to find out about his options, he wasn't ready to file for divorce. Generosa was furious. All her life, even a perceived betrayal, resulted in her cutting that person out of her life. And believing he'd had a child with another woman, when she had been unable to conceive, was, to Generosa, the worst kind of betrayal. If he thought his wife had been angry, irrational, and out of control before, Ted had seen nothing yet. Generosa sought out a divorce attorney of her own, who quickly told her that she would be in a much worse position if she filed for divorce in England. She thought that this could not be a coincidence and believed Ted was out to not only replace her with another woman, but to screw her out of money and property that was rightfully hers. She flew back to New York with the children to file for divorce in Manhattan. To Generosa, this was not just war, but she planned to enact a scorched-earth campaign against Ted. She would take everything, his money, his property, his children, and his reputation. She wouldn't just take him to the cleaners. She would destroy him. That concludes part one of this episode of Once Upon a Crime. You won't want to miss part two. This story takes so many bizarre and deadly twists and turns that I couldn't fit it all into one episode. Part two will be available next Monday as usual, but it will be released early to Patreon supporters. If you are a supporter at any level, you can listen to part two this week. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime for more details. And remember to subscribe, review, and share this podcast with others. Stay tuned at the end of this episode to hear from another independent true crime podcast that you can listen and subscribe to as well. It's one of my very favorites, and I know you'll love it. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. This is Brianna and Kelly from Murder Dictionary Podcast. We go from A to Z, exploring different topics or motives each week. We've covered axe murder, killer kids, necrophilia, and occult murders. Murder Dictionary gives tons of facts and details, balanced out with humor. If you want a true crime and chill, or test your trivia knowledge with our serial killer games, or if you like lesser-known cases you may not have heard before, check out Murder Dictionary Podcast. 